Our passage for today will be 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. And obviously, Craig's not here. I hope he is enjoying his time on vacation with his family. Um, so we'll, I'll do this week, and then uh, Mr. David Beeman will handle his business next week. So, 1 Peter 4, 1-6. I'll go ahead and read it for us. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning and we thank You so much for this day that You've given us. We thank You for Your gracious and patience with us. Uh, Father, we thank You for the powerful message that Chris delivered to us this morning from Your Word. Uh, Very convicting, uh, very strong. And Father, we just pray that You would allow that to sink deep into our hearts and that we would evaluate ourselves, Father, so that we would... uh, Act rightly, Lord, that we would conduct ourselves in a manner that's pleasing to You. Now, Father, as we open up Your Word in First Peter, I just pray that You would uh, give us all eyes to see and ears to hear as we evaluate this text. Uh, Father, once again, we thank You so much, and we look forward to what You'll show us from Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to open our lesson this morning by asking a question. Can someone define the word paradox? What, what does it mean when someone says that something is a paradox? What is that? Seemingly two meanings. Two meanings? Op- opposite meanings. Opposite meanings? Not quite. One thing looks to, it looks to be true about one thing, but it's not. Okay, yeah, it's getting close. Yeah. Maybe two things that seem to be true, but they can't both be true. Something, something's off. Something's off. Okay, a paradox is a statement that seems contradictory, but it still conveys truth or meaning. Okay, one definition I found said, it is a statement that is seemingly impossible or absurd, but which, upon further scrutiny, may be logical or true, or at least contain an element of truth. So, for example, here are are a few paradoxical statements that I found that we have all probably heard and and probably used at some point or another. Um, You have to spend money to make money. You ever heard that? All right. Yeah. At first, this seems contradictory, right? However, once you think it through, the statement has some truth to it. At its core, it means you often need to invest some money up front to generate some kind of income. For example, a business owner may invest in advertising to reach new customers. A real estate investor may spend money to purchase a property to earn monthly income when they start renting it out. A student may invest in a college education, hopefully leading to a higher paying job after graduation. What about the phrase, less is more? Have you ever heard that one? Um, That's another statement that seems contradictory. Uh, But the point is that sometimes having just the essentials is better than having too many unnecessary things. So, for instance, my family's leaving on, Craig's on vacation this week, my family's going on vacation next week. Um, If Leslie came up to me and said, our vacation's going to be a blast because I have 50 fun things planned for us to do while we're in Florida. (laughs) I might come back to her and say, babe, that's too much, right? We don't have time to relax, enjoy being there if we fill our schedules like that. In this case, less activities might make for a more enjoyable trip. So that might be an instance where you could use a paradoxical statement. Less is more. Okay, here's one more. 
How many of you have heard the statement, the more you give, the more you receive? Again, it seems contradictory. Um, now, we all know I'm not talking about like karma or anything like that. In Acts 20, 35, we're told that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So this is a paradoxical statement that communicates the joy and satisfaction that comes from being able to give in order to bless others. So these are all paradoxical statements we may have said at some point. Yet, how many of you have often considered how paradoxical the Christian life is? Being a Christian means that we are a walking paradox. Because of the Bible's instructions, we don't, we don't look at the world like other people do. Regenerated minds don't process life events like the natural mind. We embrace the paradoxes that's built into our faith. And let me show you what I mean. This is one of my favorite books. How many of you have read Valley of Vision? Okay. It's, uh, it's just a, it's a book of Puritan prayers. And uh, my wife's reading this one for a morning devotion, so I'm not going to try to lose her place in it. But the first, the first prayer in this book is called The Valley of Vision. Right? And I put, if you don't have a handout, I put it on the back of your handout this morning. And I want to I sh- read this to you. And I just want you to follow along with me as I read this. And you'll see that the author had a good grasp of how the Christian life is a paradox. So here's what it says. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold Thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. That's awesome. This prayer is full of Christian paradoxes. Yet, because we are Christians and we read our Bibles, we understand what the author means when he points these things out. And they fill our hearts with joy because they're true and we know they're true. However, we must also understand that these statements are foolish and seem very, very contradictory to the unregenerate person, the person who has not been born again. Go try telling the world that humility and brokenness over your sins are the signs of true triumph. Go tell the world that denying all your good works is the true path to virtue. Go tell them that confession and repentance are the means of healing. The world will not accept that. They'll look at you and say, what are you talking about? And we often cross a line when we ask people to have humility, confession, when we ask them to deny themselves or admit they were wrong. For example, when's the last time you heard a politician, a sports figure, or some prominent person stand up and say, without qualification, I was wrong. I confess my sin, and I am asking for forgiveness. Very rarely does that happen. And I always get tickled when I think about the Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal. Right? He stood on public television and said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And as it turned out, he did. 
But Bill argued that he did not think the phrase sexual relations included the types of activities he was involved in. So rather than face up to his sins, he played with the definition of words in order to escape accountability. And we see this type of dance all around us now. We redefine words so they don't mean what they have always meant. So sin is not called what it is. Listen to the news sometime. Abortion is no longer called murder. It's called reproductive health care, right? And so why would anyone repent for receiving reproductive health care? There's no offense in obtaining medical treatment. Getting help for a medical condition is a good thing, right? We no longer talk about the sin of sodomy. It's called same-sex marriage. And why would any decent person object when two people are in love? You're just being an old-fashioned bigot if you point out what the Bible clearly teaches. And now, with the whole transgender movement, society's having a really tough time defining what a woman is. Why? Because if you put a clearly articulated definition on the word woman, a small portion of the population will feel that they cannot participate in their deviant behavior without a sense of guilt. And we can't have that. My point is, when you play with the language, you remove the offensive nature of the act, and sin is no longer seen as sin. It's normalized. And so when some religious dinosaur comes along and says to be a Christian, you must accept the paradox that brokenness, repentance, and denial of self are the signs that you truly understand the severity of sin and Christ's lordship in your life. It seems like complete and utter nonsense to them. They stumble over these truths. And quite honestly, I get it. To the unregenerate person, the Christian worldview makes no sense. Why give up the pleasures of sin for guilt and denial of self? It's foolish, right? And that is why I believe salvation is a supernatural act of God. Unless God intervenes in a person's life, they will never be able to appreciate the paradoxes that make us rejoice. They will never have the vision to see God at work in the valley. But now I want to transition to start talking about us, right? What about us Christians? How are we doing in this area? Have we grown in our beliefs to the point that we not only accept, but treasure all of the paradoxes of our faith? And I have one particular paradox in mind this morning because it's the one that Peter highlights in our text. So my question to you this morning is, have you come to accept the paradox that suffering is often the pathway to victory for the Christian? Look, I know that's a tricky question to process because if you're like me, you want to believe that if you were ever called upon to suffer for your faith, you would endure it because you love your king. However, if you're like me, there's also a pro probably a small nagging doubt in the back of your mind that you might not be as strong as you think you are. If I'm being honest with myself, I would probably crumble if I were faced with actual persecution. Right? I don't want, I don't want prideful arrogance to fool me concerning my ability to stand firm in the face of slander, insults, and possible violence. I want to think I would make my Lord proud, but I'm scared to be tested in that area. So what does a person like me need? What would help someone scared about facing suffering? First, somebody like me needs God's Word to point, out, to point these paradoxes out to me. But then... I need an apostolic writer like Peter to guide me, strengthening my resolve and showing me how to suffer well. And that is exactly what he does in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So with that, let's start working our way through the text for this morning. In chapter 4, verse 1, Peter begins by saying, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now this, 
this introductory clause points us back to chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, where Peter had just expounded on Christ suffering in the flesh and what that meant. Now, we know that when Peter speaks of Christ's sufferings, he's talking about Christ's death on the cross and all the unjust mistreatment from the people that went along with that. However, I think we need to go back to verse 18 and ask what Christ's sufferings in the flesh actually accomplished. And thankfully, Peter tells us in verse 18, Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So here we see what the end goal was. Christ's suffering achieved for us the forgiveness of sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. It achieved the substitutionary atonement necessary for wretched people like us to stand before God holy and blameless in heaven. So number one on your handout this morning is remember that Christ's sufferings meant victory. Now, we rejoice in this truth. We love it. And we worship Christ because of it. However, what I just proclaimed to you is the greatest paradox known to man. And, and what is that? It is the proclamation that Christ won the greatest victory possible through suffering and death. Through His death and resurrection, He defeated death and sin. Think about that proclamation from an unbeliever's perspective. To them, what I just said is utterly illogical. Why is it illogical? Because death doesn't typically equate to victory. Don't forget that this paradox concerning Christ is the stumbling block that so many people trip over. Most people can't comprehend how a person condemned as a criminal and crucified on a cross can be the great Messiah of the Jews. At the time of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah was supposed to be this great revolutionary hero who would free the Jews from the oppression of the Romans. Yet Jesus didn't show up as a great war hero, did He? No, instead He showed up as the suffering servant of Yahweh. And to this day, Jews are still looking for their Messiah. They missed Him because they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the paradox that this death was His victory. So in the, eyes of the Lord, uh, in the eyes of the world, Jesus' suffering and crucifixion, crucifixion were evidence that He was an abject failure. Right? To them, He was nothing more than a blasphemous madman with the delusions of grandeur. But in reality, in truth, His death was His battle march to victory. Now, I can't, I can't walk through it like Craig did last week, but if you go back and listen to Craig's previous message in the series, he tells us that this victory is precisely what Jesus was proclaiming in 1 Peter 3.19. At its core, that weird passage is about Jesus proclaiming His victory. Death was not defeat, it was His crowning achievement. Now, understanding this dynamic of Jesus' suffering resulting in, in His victory is of critical importance. We must grasp this paradox. But why? Why is it so important that we are firmly rooted in the understanding that Jesus' sufferings were the path to, to victory? Why must we embrace this paradox with all our hearts? We must embrace it because we are commanded to have the same mindset as Christ. Right? Chris talked about that this morning in the sermon. But it's also what Peter says in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. That is the key point to this whole passage. Everything we will discuss this morning flows out of that command. You are to arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Jesus. You want to suffer well when persecution comes? Then you better not see unjust suffering as some kind of cruel punishment from God. You better not see unjust suffering as simply bad luck. 
You better not see unjust suffering as evidence that God is not real and does not care. Instead, Christians must think like Christ and understand that unjust suffering can be the God-ordained path to victory. And I don't think I'm presenting anything to you that's new and novel. Um, I don't think this concept is foreign to this class. Uh, Craig has talked repeatedly these past few weeks about following Christ's pattern. If I remember correctly, he compared it to those little notebooks that we give to children when they're learning to write, where they follow the dotted outlines of the letters. Right? They continue practicing and practicing on these templates until they know what the letters look like and how to write them. And I think he's also compared it to those little dot-to-dot -dot drawings where you connect the numbered dots until a picture is formed. If you want a complete picture that makes sense, stick to the pattern. Right? You follow it every step of the way. And all Craig's been doing when he uses these illustrations is try to make sense of passages like 1 Peter 2, 21 where Peter tells us that we have been called to suffer. And Peter explicitly says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Right? Very clear. Christ's suffering was the example for us to follow. He is the template. Yet, it will be hard to follow His steps if we don't think like He thought. That's what Peter is hammering home in the first part of 1 Peter 4.1. If you want to suffer well, you're going, to, you're going to have to suffer like Christ. Then you better be thinking like Christ. We focus our eyes on Him, think like Him, and try to mimic His every move. Alright, let's move to point two on your handout. Point two says, Consider how Christ's victory unshackles you from unshackles you from sin so you can suffer unjustly. I butchered that, so let me say it again. Consider how Christ's victory unshackles you from sin so you can suffer unjustly. Now, I took this point from the end of verse 1 and all of verse 2. Peter says we are to remember Christ's suffering and arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. His reasoning for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, this is another one of those peculiar statements that Peter makes that's kind of confusing. He says we need to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Well, let's deal with the suffering part first. What kind of suffering is in view here? We know this isn't suffering because you did something dumb and now the consequences are catching back up to you. We know that can't be it. No, this is suffering because you chose to break with the world and its vices to follow Christ and live righteously. And now here's what you must realize. In your striving after righteousness, you condemn the world and its desires. And Jesus told us how this dynamic worked, John, how this dynamic works. John 17 or John 7, 7. He says, The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. On a smaller scale, the same is true of Christians. If you once participated in all the sinful activities that this world holds sacred, but then came to Christ and changed your lifestyle, your new standard of living is a testimony that you think the world and its standards are wrong, right? If you didn't think it was wrong, you wouldn't have stopped doing what you were doing. But now that you've stopped doing what the world does, those in the world feel the shame of their actions. You expose them, and they will no longer look at you the same way they used to. Your old friends will no longer want to hang out with you. Those close to you will begin watching your every move, just waiting for you to slip up so they can call you a hypocrite. That's how this works. When you align yourself with Christ and you pursue a life of righteousness, you will have people who reject you and want to see you fail. There may be even people who despise you to the point 
that they truly do bring persecution into your life. But again, we will only be surprised by this if we fail to read our Bibles. Jesus told us it would be this way. In Matthew 10, 34 through 39, shocking passage. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Guys, this is the suffering that Peter's talking about. It's slander, it's gossip, it's rejection, it's hatred, and quite possibly physical harm, all because you chose to call sin what it is and turn away from it. It is suffering because you've chosen to follow Christ and live righteously. And we know this because Peter has talked about suffering for righteousness' sake for almost the whole book. For instance, in 2.19, he said, It's a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He basically repeats the same thought in 2.20 when he says, But if, when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 3.14, he said, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 3.17, he said, For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then later in 4.15, he will say, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So in the context of the book, along with the command to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ and follow His pattern, Peter tells us that the suffering in view here is unjust suffering for the sake of righteousness. But that still doesn't eliminate all the problems in this verse for us, does it? What does he mean when he says, people who are willing to suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin? What does that mean? Is he talking about some sinless perfection? No. Obviously, that's not what's in view here. What Peter is talking about here is a mind shift, a, a, a shift in mindset. A moment ago, I talked about how following Jesus means turning your back on the sinful desires of this world and pursuing righteousness, even if it makes you an enemy to those in your own household. A true believer understands this is a potential reality. Yet, they cherish Christ to the point that they are content with accepting whatever hardships come their way because they want to be in union with Him above all else. He is their treasure. He is the pearl of great price, and they are willing to forsake all if it means they can have Him. Well, all this sounds good in theory, but how does this work itself out when the rubber meets the road? How does suffering help one cease from sin? And I want us to think about how these, how these potential conflicts work themselves out in practical terms, okay? So just for a minute, I'm going to put this hypothetical situation before us, okay? And I want us to pretend a believer is at a friend's house one night and some sinful things are occurring. The believer's put on the spot and he's being pressured to participate. Right? It's a challenging situation. And the believer knows there will be some form of persecution if they do not go along and participate. Right? It, it could be people making fun of them, or it could mean death. They're not sure what will happen. The bottom line is there's no easy way out here. So hypothetically, this person has two choices. First, they could downplay their relationship with Christ, participate in whatever sin is happening, Avoid all potential problems and get out of there as quickly as possible. It's an option, right? It's not a good one, but it is an option. Essentially, they would kill their conscience 
and destroy their Christian witness, but hey, they save their skin and avoid anyone thinking ill of them. Okay, what's option two? Option two is they swallow hard, push down their nerves, refuse to participate in whatever sin's taking place, stay loyal to Christ, and then accept whatever ridicule or violence may come because they would rather die than be unfaithful to Jesus. Now obviously, option two is the better option here. But let's think about this. The person in option one was willing to sin to save their skin. The person in example two was not. The believer in example two knew they would face persecution if they did not participate in this hypothetical sinful situation. Yet they still chose not to sin and stayed faithful to Christ. Based on those parameters, let me ask you, how much power does sin have in this second person's life? The answer is sin has no power in their life. Their willingness to suffer for righteousness proved that sin's power had been broken. The pressure of death could not force them to sin. Now, I know that's an illustration that falls apart in a million different ways. You guys could poke holes all over that analogy. But guys, that's what Peter's communicating in the first part of verse 2. Whoever is armed with the mind of Christ and is willing to suffer for their, con for their convictions has ceased from sin. It's not that this person will never sin again. Obviously, they will. Peter's simply saying that sin has no dominion in this person's life. Furthermore, in the latter part of verse 2, Peter's logic is that if a person is unwilling to sin, to bypass suffering, they're no longer going to live for the pleasures of this world. If danger and death cannot provoke them to sin, then there's no way they'll give themselves over to a lack of self-control. No temptation out there will cause them to run back into the arms of this world. Instead, their sole concern is fulfilling the will of God in their lives. So this is another example of why an understanding of our union with Christ is so essential. When you truly grasp the paradox that Christ's victory over sin and death came through suffering, the shackles of sin fall off your wrist. Only then will you become truly willing to suffer unjustly for righteousness because all fear is gone. Peter's saying that when you have this mindset, the mindset of Christ, sin will lose its power over you because it can't scare you into sin and it can't entice you into sin. The beautiful thing here is that you can choose to follow Christ willingly, even to death, because you love Him. I hope that makes sense. That is a tricky verse. But I, we're, we'll, we'll ease back into it in a minute, and I think you'll see why. But look, for now, let's move back to, on to three. Okay, so point three on your handout. Continually remind yourself that you have sinned plenty in the past. Continually remind yourself that you've sinned plenty in the past. So up to this point, the two observations from the text that we've made that will arm us to suffer well are remember that Christ's death meant victory, and consider how Christ's victory unshackles you from the power of sin so that you can suffer unjustly. Now we'll look at verse 3 to see that Peter is giving these believers another tool to put in their toolbox to help them suffer well. And that tool is their memory of their past life. 1 Peter 4.3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So here in this verse, Peter is referring back to the time before salvation, before the time they had ceased from sin, and he's asking them to remember what their life was like before Christ. And how was their life? Well, Peter says you lived just like the Gentiles. And that's not a compliment. As we know, the word Gentiles refers to those pagan people who did not know God and were marked by insatiable desires for lustful pleasures. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul gives us a pretty good definition of the word Gentile. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And then he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Peter's pointing us back to that time when we did not know God and we lived like unbelievers. And he says that period of time before God saved you was sufficient for you to live sinfully. And then Peter spells out what that ungodly living looked like. And we've, we've went through it. But what we need to understand is that list that he provides for us. Right? Those types of behaviors is what, mark, what marks unbelievers. Believers do not engage in these sorts of activities. But we also need to keep in mind that this is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list. You may not have committed every sin on Peter's list here, but the truth is you've probably committed other sins that are not listed in verse 3. So we don't need to view this, this list like it's an exhaustive catalog of sins, but rather a representative list that gets Peter's point across. And Peter's point here is it doesn't matter what your sin looked like or how much you engaged in it. Whatever the sin was and the amount of time you participated in it was sufficient. That's the point. Some of us here may have been known for being a bit rowdy and sinning a lot before we came to Christ. Peter's advice is, whatever you've done was sufficient. Now stop. Others here may have lived a pretty tame life before Christ and not indulged in the pleasures of the flesh as much as others have. Right? Our sins looked differently. Our sins were not as offensive as others, but we did sin some. And Peter's advice to us is, whatever you've done, it's sufficient. Now stop it. It's pretty straightforward. Now that we've come to Christ, we must refuse to indulge in the sins that were a part of our former life. There's no going back to sow your wild oats. Whatever you've done previously was enough. There's no good reason for you to return to that kind of godless living. And truthfully, if you remember who you were before Christ and have a realistic view of how vile your sin was before God, you will be thankful for how kind and gracious God has been to you in delivering you from that body of death. And that thankfulness will fuel your tank, driving you to suffer when the time comes. That appreciation and love for Christ's grace and kindness in your life is what drives us to, into obedience when temptation comes. And here's the thing. I think because we are modern Christians living in America, we, we have a different view of temptation than this ancient world that Peter is writing to. And I think that's what makes some of these verses so tricky. Temptation in the ancient world took the carrot and stick approach. Sure, there were temptations in ancient times that arose from pursuing fleshly desires. That's, that's the carrot. Sin that looks appealing and feels good has always trapped humanity. It's what tempted Eve in the garden, right? She saw the tree was good for food and the fruit looked delightful. She had to taste it. That's what we do with sin. Got to taste it. Got to try it. Humans have always been tempted by things that look delightful and pleasurable. The carrot approach to sin trapped people in the ancient world, and it traps people in modern America. We like to feel good, and sin gives us what we desire. But in the ancient world, sin had a stick approach as well. Persecution was a real possibility if you weren't willing to commit certain sins. That's what, I was, that's what I was trying to capture a few minutes ago with that silly hypothetical scenario that I put before you. We forget that in their context, if you weren't willing to give a pinch of incense to the emperor and declare him to be Lord, there's a possibility it could cost you your life. That's a different motivation to sin, but it's a temptation nonetheless. We don't have to deal with the stick approach to sin very much where we live. So I think we can forget how tempting the stick can be for some people. For most of us, the worst thing that will happen if we confess to loving Christ is that we might lose some friends or some family members might stop talking to us. In the grand scheme of things, that's not that big of a price to pay for being a Christian. 
But for those of us that watched the uh, vi video in the fellowship groups last week, if you're a Muslim living in Egypt, your incentive structure for converting to Christianity looks a lot different. It's illegal for Muslims to convert to Christianity in Egypt. Therefore, the temptation to sin for those folks is a lot different than ours. They have a big stick hanging over their head that tempts them, that can tempt them to recant their beliefs. So if you live in one of those places where both the carrot and the stick are coming after you, Peter's words are comforting. He's saying don't go chasing after the carrot. You spent your whole life before Christ pursuing the carrot, and your life was empty and vain. You knew not God. Now that you do know God, the stick's coming after you. Yet if you're willing to suffer the blows of the stick and still commit yourself to resisting sin, then it's proof that you're the real thing and sin has lost its power over you. And honestly, that drives us right into our next point. Point four on your handout. Take hope that Christ will execute perfect justice on your oppressors. Take hope that Christ will execute perfect justice on your oppressors. Peter's words gave these believers hope because they understood that they would face the wrath of the stick for not participating in the sins of their time. Right? This isn't a maybe. It was all but guaranteed they would suffer for their commitment to Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5 in your text. Peter says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Look, when you stop going to the drinking parties with your friends, they malign you. They're going to talk about you. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb in that old crowd. People are going to be shocked, surprised, and they're going to speak ill of you. Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, right? So where do you find hope if you begin to be persecuted and maligned for being a Mr. Goody Two-Shoes? Where are you going to go? Well, Peter tells you to look to the afterlife. Look to Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. If you want to suffer well when persecution comes, you have to play the long game. If you expect God to judge all those who treat you wrong in the here and now, you'll probably be upset and discouraged because God doesn't always provide us with instant relief. If you expect God to judge, instead, we must trust that He's faithful and just. We must trust that He will bring a complete and total reckoning against evildoers when it seems good for Him to do so. That may not happen in this lifetime for us. There are plenty of people who are cruel tyrants and mean to believers who seem to live seemingly prosperous and trouble-free lives. They seem to have it made in this world. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms. Yet the Bible tells us that God is not asleep at the wheel. Right? He sees and He will judge. Acts 10.42 and He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. Acts 17.31 Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. God will judge those who are evildoers. God will judge those who malign and oppress His people. Right? And at this judgment, there will be complete disclosure. Nothing will be hidden. Every single crooked deed will be brought to the light. Revelation 20.12 And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Revelation 20.15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So if you're being persecuted, take heart and suffer well with the mind of Christ because judgment's coming. 
God will bring punishment on those who, who malign you. So that takes care of the unbelievers, okay? That takes care of the unbelievers who bring persecution on God's beloved. But what about the believers who suffer from persecution? What happens to them? Well, let's move to our last point on the handout. Be grateful that the gospel brings true and lasting victory. Be grateful that the gospel brings a true and lasting victory. Now, I got this point from verse 6. However, in verse 6, Peter gives us another potentially tricky verse to deal with here. I will read this, I will read this verse from my ESV first, and then I'm going to read it from another translation to see if we can pick up on any differences. Okay? So here we go. Verse 6 in the ESV says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, and though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Okay, so ESV, NASB, King, the King James, and the New King James all say that the gospel was preached to the dead. Well, that creates a bit of a quandary, doesn't it? Now, if you look at the same verse in an LSB, NIV, uh, HTSB, the Home of Christian, or a Net Bible, the verse reads a little bit differently. For example, the LSB says, for, this, for to this the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they live in the Spirit according to the will of God. So these translations say the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Well, that's a bit different. One seems to, be about, seems to be talking about preaching to the dead, and the other is talking about preaching that occurred while someone was alive, but they have since died. So we have some decisions to make. right? And our first question should be, which group of translations is a better rendition of the Greek text? Right? Let's go back to the sources. And the answer is, the word now is not in the Greek text. So from a purely textual standpoint, the ESV and NASB group translates the text more literally. The LSB and NIV group, they do a little interpretation for us to help us, to help us grasp what's being communicated. So different guys will have different opinions on which translation they prefer here. I personally am okay with the LSB helping me out with this interpretation here so long as they put the added words in italics as they've done. Right, Boris? Yep. All right. This visually cues me in to the fact that they've done some interpretation in case I want to dig a little deeper. Theologically, we know the ESV and NASB translations cannot mean what they seem to be saying on the surface. There's no other place in Scripture where people are given a second chance at repentance after death. Actually, the opposite of that position is presented consistently through the Bible. For example, Hebrews 9.27 states clearly, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Jesus' parable in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus is another example of where death and judgment are final. Right? So there's no second chances to hear the gospel and come to salvation. You get this life, and after that comes judgment. So even though some interpretation is given in the LSB translation, I think they communicate the theology clearly and accurately. And what is that? It's saying that the gospel was preached to people who were once alive, and they believed, and now they've been judged in the flesh. In other words, they were put to death. Right? So this is referring to believers who have died. And now we're, we're faced with the question, are there deaths possibly through are there deaths which were possibly through persecution proof that Christianity is a farce? Right? And it was kind of funny. I was reading through some of Craig's notes. He sent me over his, his notes on this. It, let me read this and you okay. take. So this is what Craig's notes said, and I think it'll help you out here. 
From the perspective of unbelievers, these Christians are judged in the realm of the flesh just like every other man, right? So they may say, Ha! You say that you have such good news. You say that you escape judgment. You say your God is great and saves you and gives you joy. Well, all we've got to say is that you're missing a lot of parties. And you die just like everybody else. So if you die and go to the worms, and we die and go to the worms, we say eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That make sense? If, if all there is is that we end up in a hole in the ground, and that's the, all there is to it, why not? Right? That is the secular mindset that's driving our culture this, that, today. It's that naturalism that says there is no afterlife. And if there is no afterlife, why not? There's no, if I don't have to answer for my sin, then let's go. Let's party. Right? If Christianity is not true, then Pascal's wager is foolishness. I'm with Paul. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then this whole thing is a bunch of baloney. And I'm going to have a good time doing a lot of bad things. Why wouldn't I? If there is no consequence to my actions, then I'm going to milk these few years I have for all the pleasure I can get out of them. But the fact is that perspective is not true. Peter says so in verse 6. You shouldn't look at believers' deaths and assume that that's the end of the road. The gospel was preached to them, and they believed. So even though they died physically, they live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Those who embrace the gospel will triumph over death. The gospel was preached to them so that they would live after dying. So if you want to suffer well, you're going to suffer, you have to suffer with the mind of Christ. And if you're going to suffer with the mind of Christ, then you must accept the paradox that death is not final. For the Christian who has believed the gospel, death only ushers us into our reward. The gospel brings true and lasting victory. So in this passage, Peter has provided us with five observations that arm us to suffer well for the cause of Christ. So my appeal to us this morning is to embrace these truths, meditate upon them, and be prepared to live a life that honors the Lord regardless of what persecutions may come. Let me pray for us and we'll call it down. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Once again, thank you so much for all that you do, Lord. We thank you so much for your word who, which corrects us and, and drives us deep into things that are hard to understand. Father, we thank you for men who are uh, fluent in the languages and the, and the commentary writers and men like Craig who spend time pouring their lives out over these passages so that they can feed us well. Father, thank you so much for all that you do. We look forward to what, look forward to what you'll do this week. Thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.